0: sermon series, because you kind of get to lay the foundation and, 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 um, and, and build on that. And um, I, I like that idea of just do it. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. We live in a, in a, in a place and a time that pragmatism and just getting after and doing the things of life are, are significant. People don't test our uh, faith system on uh, necessarily what we say or the great willowy pieces of theological prose but on whether or not it works. When the rains of your life come, do you stand firm? And uh, the, the gentleman who wrote this, his father is a friend of mine. It's interesting to say that uh, because 20 years ago, he'd have been my contemporary, but now he's my friend's son, right? Wow. Old and unreal, but whatever. That's a different sermon for a different day. Zach wrote in, in, in his book for the Red Letter Challenge out, out the shoot, he said, that's the big idea. Taking Jesus' words, the ones that are written in red letters in your Bibles, and putting them into practice, literally. That's the very unoriginal yet revolutionary idea that's going to change, not just the followers of Jesus, but the world in which we live now, I love that. I love that because people like to put Christianity in its own little box and say, you Christians are in this box, and we're going to pack you here. You are a religion. And as a religion, there's certain things that you can do and talk and, and, and behave and, and, and ways that mark you. But don't get out of your box and don't move out of your place. A hundred years ago, it used to be that Christianity kind of ran the world. If a person wanted to be elected to an office in Orange, California, they went to St. John's Lutheran Church. And in a room downstairs from here that is now a beautiful children's uh, ministry center used to be a bowling alley. bet not many of you knew that, huh? When they went to put the flooring down, there were grooves in the floor, and the, the contractor who did the flooring said, it's almost as if someone had rolled like a bowling ball down the middle of this thing. said, oh yeah, it used to be a bowling alley, and, and he filled it in and put the flooring in. It was fantastic. But 100 years ago, down in that level, the men's smoking room and bowling alley, that's where the decisions of Orange were made. That's where the founding fathers made the choices and said, how's this going to be, and what's this, what's this going to look like? If you come forward into 2019, it's just not that way in the church anymore. If it were, we'd have more politicians seeking office saying, hey, I'd like to help, I'd like to read. It's just not like that anymore. And so how we put into action our faith is a big deal. Our witness to Jesus Christ and his role in our lives speaks volumes more than theologizing and philosophizing. It gets real in a hurry and uh, people look at us and say what are you going to do about your faith so those words of jesus that were from matthew's gospel are are powerful today and i like the last piece of it therefore let everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I teach a Tuesday morning Bible study. We've got about 70 guys that uh, are in there every week, about 120, 530 come flying through there every, every month. And uh, I always tell them when we're studying the scripture, I said, whenever you get to a therefore, you need to stop and take a breath. We're always looking for buts and therefores. Because when we find a therefore, it means this is Why? When Jesus stops in the, at the end here of, of Matthew chapter 7, he's already gone through the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4, five six, and seven, uh, 5, 6, and 7. And he's got this dynamic teaching. No notes, no PowerPoint, no microphone, no nothing, and it's the best sermon ever preached. Helps to be God when you preach, uh, but you know, that's something I'll never uh, understand. But, but he preaches his sermon. He gets to the end and he says, Therefore... It's like a coach who's putting his players on the field and then he looks and he says, therefore, this is how it works in the game. This is how this drill, this thinking translates into the game. And Jesus is saying that here. He says, therefore. And then we look very carefully and we think about our lives, where we're at, where we're going, what works, where it doesn't work, and how closely we follow after Jesus. And as you go through this in the next 40 days, I pray you'd look carefully wherever you have a therefore. And that you'd stop and go back up a sentence to a verse or two and get a running start back at that therefore. Because once you start looking for those in the scriptures, they're going to pop out at you. And you're going to be like, holy smokes! He was right! This is insane! Look at this! When Jesus says therefore, he's putting his arm around your shoulder, he's putting his finger on that red letter and he's saying... This is what it means, and this is how it works, and this is how it, how it looks. So in our text today, he goes into that, therefore, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then he articulates exactly what that, what that looks like, therefore, for that purpose, and there's some realities in this text that are pretty cool. One is, is a little crazy. It's going to rain. Eventually, in our lives, it's going to rain. And no one is immune from that. Now, there's different kinds of rainy days. This is a rainy day in Kauai, which ain't a bad rainy day, right? As rainy days go, if you can have a rainy day in Hawaii, why not? You go in, you get a little plate lunch, you hang out, you have the hot garlic shrimp, a little rice, and you're living the dream. You wait for it to quit raining, and then you pop out, it's great. It's a rainy day in Hawaii, ain't a bad thing. And I would offer that living life in 21st century Orange County, a lot of our rainy days really aren't that bad. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians he says, your light and momentary sufferings. Some stuff is light and momentary but it's rain nonetheless. And when our lives are built on something firm and strong, we go back under the patio, we wait for it to quit raining and it's fine. Junior got a B in class. Junior didn't die from getting a B in class. You may think he did. He may think he did, but it'd be all right. It's just a little rain in a Hawaiian day. You take him to Disneyland, you live the dream. It's all okay. He didn't get what I wanted to get. I couldn't buy what I wanted to buy. Those are kind of a little, little bit of sprinkles that in Hawaii, in Orange County, aren't, aren't so bad. But there are those moments of rain in people's lives that are dramatic and painful. In our congregation, we've been going through that. We have a congregation that's both older and younger at the same time. And there are churches that would love to have our problem with that. So we have issues with the nursery and where we're going to put all the kids and all that stuff. And then your pastoral staff has been going out to the cemetery just about every other day since the middle of August at a funeral yesterday. Now there's some rain. There's a deluge and a hurricane. When someone is critically ill or critically sick, or your father or grandfather dies, and you've got to figure out where your life is built and what it looks like, Because sometimes that leads to existential anxiety. Who am I and what it's all about? What is my life all about? When someone loses a job in their mid-40s, it's not just a little downpour, it's a big deal. When a family is split up through divorce, it's a big deal. When someone is going through a time of mental illness in a family system or a friendship system, it's a big deal. And it's then that you look, and, and, and all the kind of stuff of life that accumulates around the foundation of your life, you're like, don't need that, don't need that, that's not essential, that's not essential. What is the most important thing in my life? Because right now it's all I have. The things that have given me security and hope and joy are gone. What's, what's left? And in those times when it rains, and if it's not raining in your life, it will, or it will again, then you have that opportunity to say, upon what is my life built, on the rock or the sand? I love that. Where are you building your life, and what does it look like? What difference does that make when life's hard and not easy? That you have to answer in your own soul. Our hope is as a congregation that we'll come alongside of you in these next 40 days. And if you've got kind of a sandy foundation, you'll be able to dig a deep piling and lay a big rocky foundation upon which to build the next season of your life. Rock or sand? What are you building on and what's your foundation? At the end of that text, the, it, it, it says these words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. How many of you ever remember writing a, a, a big paper, like a, say a 15 to 20 page paper? Remember, like a research paper? That's all? Okay, all the literate people come forward after (laughs) church. Come on, how many people had to write a paper? And what's the hardest... There you go. What's the hardest part about writing that paper is not writing it. It's all the documentation, right? Endnotes and footnotes. Okay, now we're going to go a little deeper. How many people went to college without a computer? Yeah. <laughs> you remember backing up the onion skin paper and marking it and then having to put up, and then you'd run out and you'd go through with the eraser on your thing, and ah, the hardest part was the documentation. I remember one of our professors at Concordia going through the library, went to him and said, What are you doing? And he said, Well, I've got this paper and I don't think the footnotes are right. It's nine o'clock. He's checking footnotes. How many, pers- how many people ever fudged a footnote? Right? Jesus taught with no footnotes. Jesus did not need to be authenticated by anybody. And when the rabbis and the scribes would sit and teach in the synagogue, they would say, Rabbi Klinkenberg said this, and Rabbi Schreiber said that, and Rabbi said this, and, and so therefore now I say to you, having studied all this stuff and doing all the footnotes and having all correct, that this is the way it should be. Jesus just gets done preaching Three chapters of scripture saying things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, laying out the Lord's Prayer, how to pray, how to give, how to, how to love your enemy. Jesus puts forth all these kind of countercultural things, and their eyes are rolling back to the head because Jesus speaks with great authority. And I love the word there, it's exousia. You say that with me? Exousia. Exousia. When your child is having a problem and says, why should I do what you tell me to do, Mom? You look at your child and you say, because I have exousia over you. And like, oh! Your kid says, yeah, sent, you sent me to school there for me to say that to you, not for you to say that to me. And Exousia means out of the being. Jesus spoke out of his own being. And his words were self-authenticating. And as the people sat that day, they just shook their heads because what Jesus said and how it applied to their lives, the rele- relevancy of it, the truth of it, showed a different side of God than what they had been used to. Whereas life had been kind of marked by checks I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. Jesus gives them a broader understanding of the foundation of life. Therefore, right? This is what this means. And yet all that teaching is still about grace. It's really about what you think about God's grace. That's what you take into your life. For some of us, God's grace is just another get out of jail card. Just uh, you you do it, you get in trouble, you get busted. God's job is forgiving, so my life's work is to sin. (laughs) And some people believe that. That God's grace is a license to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. And the clarifying question that I like to ask when someone rolls that philosophy out to me is, so how's that going for you? Well, you know, my life's kind of murky right now, Pastor. I don't have it all together. I'm really struggling with thus and such and thus and such. But you know what? I know that God loves me and God forgives me. And for me, that's like hanging Jesus on a cross. And as you walk by under that cross, kind of going, hey, how's it going today, Lord? It's that cheap, cheap grace. God's job is to forgive, so it's my job to kind of give God what he wants. I'll give him all sorts of sins to cover over. But there's a brokenness that goes with this sinful way of life. There's a negativity of a guilt and a shame that are carried in a person's soul as they move away from what God has called them to do and live more for themselves. At the end of the day, we don't go up to God and say, here it is, you, uh, you gave me this 100 years ago and here's my get-out-of-jail-free card. Cool. And a life's been filled with all sorts of broken moments and painful pieces that could have been avoided simply by following the therefore, and building life on a rock rather on sand. There's a refinement going on in the Christian Church throughout the West, especially in North America, moving away from the idea of cheap grace and knowing Jesus just being a punch ticket to salvation but finding a costly grace, a grace that flows from the cross of Christ and the profound love that the Lord God has for you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words in his book, A Cost of Discipleship. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Bonhoeffer was a big deal about two years ago. Noted author Eric Metaxas wrote a book called Bonhoeffer, and it was a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't even make it to be 40 years old, but died at the hands of a a firing squad after he and some others had uh, tried to take out Adolf Hitler in late 1944. Bonhoeffer was all in. He didn't write books that didn't make sense. He didn't have a a few chips back staying in London and saying, you know, I'll wait until this whole World War II thing is over, and then I'll go back and we'll rebuild the the Lutheran church. Rather, Bonhoeffer was in London when he got word of, of, of the German tanks going into Poland, and he said, unless I go back to my country and I'm a part of the pain, I can't be a part of the Restoration. His actions spoke louder than his words. Bonhoeffer leads us to a Jesus that delivers rich and costly grace. How much is the grace of God worth? Well, for God, it cost him the death of his son Jesus. He loved us so much that he gave the life of his Son as a ransom for you and me, so that that forgiveness isn't cheap. It's vast. But it's costly. And the same Jesus who taught with authority brings that authority, one on the cross, to bring us into a living, breathing relationship with himself. By what authority? Well, by the authority of his word and by the authority of his sacrifice. He's called you to be his own child. Never to renege and go back on that promise. Because the grace by which and to which he's called you is from the very heart of God itself. And so it's precious. It's valuable. It's life transforming. And it's a grace upon which a life of value is built. Without it, faith in Jesus and Christianity just kind of comes another religion, another philosophy whatever but with jesus in that cross it becomes a platform a foundation upon which a life of service and gratitude and sacrifice is lived out and gives meaning not just to that individual but meaning to the people with whom that individual lives and so those words become powerful the wise person builds the house on the rock. In the days and weeks ahead, you have an opportunity to meditate and think about that. To draw in some very relevant, some very practical things into your life. But for today, I just call you to think a little bit about where you're at. To kind of kick around the corners of your life. To, 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 to brush away some of the sand and kind of see what's there. And maybe to look with a new and a fresh eye at the cross of Jesus, not with a wink and a nod, but with an outstretched hand that says, thank you, Lord Jesus. I need everything you have. Therefore, I will follow you. Amen.